Good afternoon. It's 4.30, and welcome to another edition of Valley Voices. I'm Amy Haddon-Marsh, your host, and my guest today is Annie Perry, originally from the Roaring Fork Valley, who now lives in Seattle. Is that correct? Yeah, just yeah. outside of Seattle. She's a legislative attorney with over eight years of experience drafting tribal law in Indian country. Prior to becoming an attorney, Annie was a Peace Corps volunteer, an intern at the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and a corruption investigator for the government of Botswana. That's amazing right there. We could have a whole <laughs> show on that. Um, her public work, published work includes an article in the Seattle Journal for Social Justice about sexual violence and conflict minerals in Democratic Republic of Congo, and an article in Federal Lawyer magazine about sexual violence in Indian country. Now, she is being true to her adventurous self and working on bringing an Afghani woman into the United States. She's here with us today by Zoom to talk about it. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you here. Finally, you know, we've been prepping for this for a while. First, uh, Annie, talk about Farashta, the woman you want to bring into the U.S. Who is she and how did you meet her? Okay. Um, thank you so much for having me on, Amy. I really appreciate the opportunity. And um, despite the varied <laughs> things in my resume that you just read off, um, I just want to say that I'm talking to you today as just a regular, I think, you know, American woman. Um, and I happened to make a friend in Afghanistan in May of 2020. I volunteer for a small nonprofit organization based in Seattle. And I met Fareshta uh, in May of 2020 with the goal of helping her work on her legal English uh, so that one day she could apply to a program somewhere in the world. Uh, this little nonprofit I work for is amazing. They have had women mentees, you know, get into programs in Japan and Poland, and they just go everywhere looking for opportunities for Afghan women. So um, Fresh and I met and we started talking once a week. And in the beginning, her English was, it was, it was her understanding was good. And then um, her spoken English started to really develop. I noticed meeting once a week and talking and I would give her assignments, um, legal assignments, reading assignments, but we, I think, noticed right off the bat that we just got each other. Um, we can make each other laugh really well, <laughs> really easily. And um, she was living what I would have considered a fairly normal Afghan woman life, although, you know, her family was not poor. So she did have um, more than a lot of a lot of Afghans do. She was helping to plan her brother's wedding. Um, she was helping to caretake her retired elderly father who was a doctor. And um, I don't know, we just kind of became fast friends. And then she dropped off the radar in November of 2020. And I didn't think too much of it at the time because she had traveled a bit with her dad, taking him to medical appointments in other cities in Afghanistan. And I thought maybe she was just, you know, without internet somewhere and, um, she got back in touch after it was two weeks of, you know, nothing. And then told me her story. What, and which was, she had been walking to an appointment, I think a hair or nail appointment to meet her sister and was grabbed from the back. And she thinks they must have put something over her mouth to knock her out. 
she woke up in um, what she described as a fairly dirty apartment. She was chained um, and told that she was now, you know, in the custody of the Taliban and that they were waiting for a man who was traveling to them to identify her as the woman they had been looking for for a decade. Um, And they explained to her that a decade ago, um, when she would have been like a late teen or 20, um, when she had been working in the hospital for Doctors Without Borders as a translator, uh, she had offended a Taliban, um, I don't know, I'm sorry, I don't know the proper term for him, but um, higher up in Taliban command, had been at the hospital and she had offended him. And her punishment was death and they were waiting for the right commander to get there to make sure it was her and then they were going to execute her. So, um, oh my gosh, I mean, that's huge. That's like, that's just a phenomenal, phenomenal situation. Um, I'm wondering if I can interrupt the story now to talk about where she was held. I mean, she was kidnapped and she was held in what sounds like a Taliban prison, according to the New York Times article. Uh, about Taliban prisons, these kidnappings and the abandoned houses people are kept in are fairly common occurrences. Did she talk about where she was held? She did. So um, true to form as her mentor um, and, you know, having her as my mentee, I made her write out um, her statement. Uh, This is something I actually learned years ago when I was getting my wilderness first aid Certificate. I learned, you know, as when you have a traumatic experience, whether you are the victim or the responder, um, it's often really helpful to write out every detail that you remember in the moment because the brain forgets. In order to cope, we forget. So, you know, the first time that she got back in touch with me, I kind of pushed her. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like so glad you're alive. I'm so glad that you made it out. Um, when I talk to you in a week, I want you to have written out everything. I want every single detail that you can remember. And I'm so glad I did that. She was true, you know, true to her assignment. She's a great student. She (laughs) wrote out everything to the, the dirty pillow. Um, She said she didn't think that there was a woman in the house because it was so dirty. Um, (laughs) Things like the details were pretty impressive. Um. So she she escaped, obviously. Um, she was held for 10 days. Yeah. And then the Taliban um, left notes at her family's door. They have, we have two notes. They're written on official Taliban stationery explaining that, and they're written to her father that he must hand his daughter over so that they can fulfill their death sentence official on Official Taliban stationery. Official Taliban stationery. Huh. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, this little nonprofit that I volunteer for is so amazing. And they have so many women that they're trying to help. Um, I immediately got in touch with my program coordinator and she took those Taliban letters and had another mentee translate them as an assignment, uh, so that I could have the English translation. And what did those, what did, what did those letters say to her family? Um, the first one was longer and then the second one was shorter. And the first one says, uh, you know, to on her father's name, um, your daughter has been sentenced to death for her work with foreigners, which is, and they use the Arabic word of forbidden. And they also use the Arabic word for slave, saying she's become a slave to the United States due to her 
connection and her work with foreigners. You know, never mind the details. Never mind that Doctors Without Borders is not an American nonprofit. But you know, I don't think they're concerned with that. <laughs> so the first one was Claire. Like she did this work and she is now sentenced to death. And then the second one was just a short paragraph saying, remember our first letter and we will get her at the earliest opportunity. So let's back up a little bit. How did she get out? How did she get out of Afghanistan? Or how did she get out of this abandoned house? Oh, okay. So um, she had help. Uh, She had a friend who... She calls um, the boy, and not because he is a boy, he is a grown adult, but because he's younger than her. And typically in Afghanistan, um, if you're going to have a relationship, you know, a man and woman, typically the male is older. So to Fereshta, because he was younger than her, he was the boy. Um, he found out where she was being held and he helped her escape. I have not asked him to give me more details. I feel like, you know, and I haven't mentioned this, Amy, but, you know, I'm not giving you Fresh's last name. I'm not going to give you the boy's name. I'm not going to tell you uh, where they are, where they were in Afghanistan, where her family is. And not that I think the Taliban is listening, but, um, you know, I don't know. And so I'm I'm being more cautious maybe than necessary. You're honoring, you have to honor her confidentiality at some point. So was the boy Taliban? No, no, the boy was not Taliban, but he, um, I, I believe overheard something and was able to, um, figure, figure out how to get her out. So his, as soon as he did that, the minute he decided that, I mean, he had the death, a death sentence on his head as well. So, um, he, came to Freshta's family and said, okay, I'm, I think that they're close to catching me and I'm going to flee. And so her family decided that Freshta should flee with the boy. I've given him um, an alias. I call him, it's an Arabic word, Israr. It means secret. <laughs> and I asked him, I was like, I said, this is the name I've chosen for you. What do you think? And he said, oh, I love it. So, okay. okay. Israr. Israr, Israr and, and Freshta. Okay. So um, he went to their family. He went to oh, yeah. her family. I'm sorry. Yeah. He went to her yeah. family and, and told them what was going to happen. Once, um, you know, when Foresta escaped and went back to her family, it, she was at home for about a month. She did not leave the house. She, you know, not for anything. And her family was like, you cannot leave the house. We're, you know, they were sure that the Taliban was waiting. So they fled together. Um, they got married before they fled. And and so this raises flags, you know, certainly from an American perspective. What uh, flags? What flags? Um, like, was that a forced marriage? You know, ah. um, was that, you know, as an American woman, I'm like, okay, if I have to flee somewhere, okay, but why would I have to marry the man that I fled with? Right. Um, but in Afghan culture, it makes absolute sense, I think. So and, you, I mean, you talked about the ownership situation in or the ownership issue is this a good place to interject that or should we wait a little bit um perhaps I could say a bit I mean it I you know I want to be very cognizant of the time (laughs) and I could speak about the ownership issue for a long time um I think that you know just as a part my personal perspective just as civilian perspective um I think that 
the future of Afghanistan for it to be positive and for Afghanistan to thrive. I think that there needs to be a massive shift in um, women's ownership over themselves, uh, over their bodies, over their autonomy, um, the legal words over their standing in the law. Um, I think there needs to be a huge shift. And I think that there are a lot of factors that could help that, you know, education, um, you know, law is just one, one of those factors. I think one really amazing path through would be through Islam, through the imams in Afghanistan. But, you know, that that's probably another show that we would talk about that. Yes, but I'm, I would I'm say, thinking of three or four shows, but we'll right. keep going. So they, they got married, Fareshta and Israr got married yes. and um, fled. And they fled. Where did they go? Uh, they, they paid a smuggler and they made it through Iran to um, Turkey. It was perilous. Uh, the bit that, you know, Fareshta has been able to tell me about um, the smugglers in, when they were in Iran uh, tortured Israr, they, I think with electrocution or electricity, they electrocuted him um, while she was, you know, like screaming, trying to get the wires off of him, demanding more money. They um, walked, slept outside for, I think, weeks. They, um, they made it across the Turkish border. And um, there, I think there was another threat from the smugglers at the Turkish border, but I haven't been given the details of how they made it through that threat. And I, and by the time they got to Turkey, they were arrested and held. And then the Turkish government, um, to its credit, you know, has a ton of Afghans flowing across the border before August and since. Um, they processed them and they released them, and they are now in the east of Turkey and uh, in in kind of um, limbo as far as refugees are concerned, but they survived. And, and when she got in touch with me when they were in Turkey and we began our weekly talks again, I was able to kind of press her about the experience and her relationship with Israr. And I, and I've answered this question to a few of my friends who are like, wait a minute, you know, what, what kind of relationship is this? And I believe that they formed, um, I think it's your term, Amy, that you gave me the trauma bond. Trauma bonding, they, right. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt right now they are very much bonded to each other. And, and also as refugees, that adds another layer of, um, you know, who do you have to lean on? And they have each other right now. Well, I want to just remind listeners, it is... Um, 445 and you're listening to Valley Voices. I'm Amy Haddon Marsh and my guest today is uh, Annie Perry who is an attorney and she is she's been working on bringing an Afghan woman and her husband into the United States and we're talking about uh, she just told us the story of Fareshta and her husband Israr which is a, uh, a pseudonym um, and uh you know, she's now in Turkey, but the thing that confused me when we were talking a little bit about this was that she had some kind of legal refuge. No, she had what was called a Kimley ID, mm -hmm. and um, and then uh, a lawyer over there had applied for legal refuge uh, legal refugee status, or maybe you did. And the application was denied. Can you talk, uh, un, sort of undo that yeah. knot? Sure, a little bit. Um, 
There are, well, okay, so due to the influx of Syrian refugees into Turkey, I think it was in 2017 or 18, what was the normal process um, of, in Europe, refugees, if they made it, the UN would process them and then either grant them refugee status or return them to their country. Um, So the UN sat down with the Turkish government and they agreed that the Turkish government would take over that role because the UN was overwhelmed. So, um, as soon as, you know, Foresta made it to Turkey, I started reaching out to anyone I could find. I spoke with um, a pastor who he's American. He's lived in Turkey for 20 years. He has four kids. And he was, he was helpful, not helpful. I mean, he was able to give me some information, but zero hope. He was like, this is an immense problem. Oh no! And, um, you know, most refugees just live in Turkey and they have, they don't have legal status and they never get it. Um, thankfully, because Foreshta had worked with Doctors Without Borders, we were reached out to them and um, tried several different paths to get in touch with um, the right person. And we were able to get in touch with a legal advisor in Paris, who then got us in touch with a Turkish attorney. And we would not have her help, but for Foreshta's work for Doctors Without Borders. So this attorney um, is amazing. I once heard the the phrase, if you want something done, ask a busy person. Like, I think she's doing a lot of things right <laughs> mm-hmm. now. And, you know, I'll, our, we mostly communicate on WhatsApp and I will send her questions and stuff. And I don't hear from her for a few days. And then because of the time difference, I'll wake up some mornings and have like 50 messages from her. And, and I know, oh, she got to me. Okay. <laughs> um, so she has been able to answer all of my legal questions and, um, and she said in some places in Turkey, the system is broken down and in refugees come, they are initially processed, but then they never get their Kimli, which is the Turkish government's acknowledgement that you are being processed, not that you have refugee status, but that you're being processed. Okay. And so that Fereshta and Israr were given their Kimli's um, and they were given an interview and, and their applications were starting to process that to the, this Turkish attorney was good news. And then, um, and then Foreshta got her rejection first. And so I then got in touch with our Turkish attorney and she was able to look it over and um, express surprise that it was rejected. And I don't speak Turkish and I don't read Turkish. And so I, I really, you know, Foreshta and I have talked about, is it possible when she had her interview that the Turkish authorities, the, that the and translator wasn't accurate and we're thinking yes, but we're not going to know. But I will say that because of our this Turkish attorney, she was able to file an appeal in the Turkish administrative court system, which very few refugees are able to do. Um, and I took some of the funds that I fundraised, fundraised for Foreshta and I paid this Turkish attorney so that now her application is in. So legally, the government of Turkey cannot kick her out because her application is being processed. The appeal is being processed. So then it gets into the the slow moving bureaucratic gears of Turkey. Works in our favor. Yeah. Okay. So we have a few minutes left. We have about seven minutes left. And you mentioned, I know it's just crazy, but you mentioned the fundraising that you're trying to do. So you want to bring Pareshta and her husband and her unborn child. She told me she was pregnant with a baby girl Mm -hmm. um, or with a girl, I should say. We know it's a baby. Um, (laughs) So 
So um, what exactly are you trying to do for them? So um, before August, um, I was looking at Canada. I was looking at a few countries in Europe trying to figure out um, how I could start a refugee um, application and get them somewhere. And then with the Taliban takeover uh, in August of Afghanistan, the U.S., opened a small window that was not open before for something called humanitarian parole. Typically that was really only available to Afghans who had direct, um, like had worked for the U S government. So it's a small window. It doesn't fit all Afghans. And um, I was able to get in humanitarian parole applications for Fereshta and Israr. And then if they have um, their baby girl in Turkey, then I'll modify the application to add one more. And what that would do, if it's granted, is it would bring them to the United States for one year, um, and within that time, they're allowed to apply for asylum because they're within the borders of the United States. Um, yeah, it's it's really amazing. And then, you know, well, there are, I think, a lot of people right now trying to help Afghans with that process, but nobody really knows how successful it will be because it's new. Right. And, and um, a couple of things... The Biden administration, according to Mother Jones, is about to make a pretty significant change to how U.S. to the U.S. refugee resettlement program. That would Uh, be amazing. And it's according to this article, um, it says that if this happens, the new plan would allow any group of at least five private citizens to come together as a, quote, sponsor circle, end quote and help Afghan refugees resettle in U.S. cities across the country. Um, So this is, oh, go ahead. What do you know about that? And and could this help you uh, with what you're trying to do? So this is um, a program that Canada has had for a while, and it's so fantastic. And it's actually something that I was trying, I was starting to reach out to try to find five Canadians, Um, but it can also be an agency. So um, you can find five people, um, or you can have uh, a group you know, five people or a church or be a sponsor. Um, And I would say, Amy, for people listening, if you are all wondering um, how you could help, you know, and you, you don't have a lot of time, like you could certainly donate money to anyone working on sponsorship of an Afghan family to make it to the United States or to Canada, um, frankly. What is your, you have a GoFundMe page, do you not? Yeah, so my GoFundMe page is up, um, which is fantastic. I've raised enough to pay for their humanitarian parole applications. It's $575 for mm-hmm. one application. So if you have a family of five, that's 575 times five, even babies. Wow. And I raised enough to pay for the Turkish uh, attorney's fees. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also raising so that money so that if their humanitarian parole comes through and they are allowed into the United States, I can have some funds to help with rent, food, um, all, all of their expenses. And mm-hmm. I've signed up to be Fereshta's sponsor. So I am financially responsible, responsible for her mm-hmm. if she comes to the United States. Um, and I would say, you know, if I raise more money than I need to help Fereshta, I'm going to, um, and I'll put this on my GoFundMe page, mm-hmm. you know, provide that to the small nonprofit I volunteer for because they have so many women they're trying to help. Right. And they've never worked with funds before. They never needed to. So I'll have to have, you know, conversations of that, but like how to help other women. So um, what is... We only have a couple of minutes left, and I do want I just wanted to ask you one more question. But before I do that, 
how do people find your GoFundMe page? And could you give us the name of your nonprofit as well? I spoke to the director of the nonprofit and we um, decided I wouldn't give you the name of the nonprofit because um, they don't want to raise the flag to the Taliban that they are still helping women get out. Okay. That makes I know, sense. As much as I would like to give you the name and say, this is an amazing organization. Um, what was the second question? Or your well, question? are you willing to give, I mean, we're talking oh. about your GoFundMe oh, page. Are you concerned yes. about um, repercussions from the Taliban? I think I've spoken with Faresh at length. I think she's comfortable for the moment. It had, does have her picture up, but mm-hmm. not her last name. And I think safety in numbers, GoFundMe is very large and you can't find her or anything just by searching, you know, mm-hmm. her facts. So you would find it by searching my name. Mm-hmm. I just went to this morning. So you go to GoFundMe's main page up in the search box. You can type A-N-N-E space P-E-R-R-Y. And I think it's the second one down. It says help Afghan family get to the United States. That's excellent. Um, I, I had one. Go ahead. I just had one last thing to say, Amy. Um, yes. I think that Afghanistan is an incredible um, problem right now. I think it's really overwhelming for a lot of people. I think this winter is going to get a bit worse. Um, And I think it's easy or maybe it's because it's hard to look. I think people kind of just look to the side. And I read something really interesting this morning um, that I just wanted to read really quickly that into the narrative of rituals, adventures, isolation, quests for power, commercial struggles, there's something in the reality of the moment what might be called the little things. And by this means history escapes the dullness of a recitation and gains an urgency that can touch people across great spans of time. Mm -hmm. And I just think that in hearing an individual story, it makes it a little bit easier to touch a larger problem. Yes, it's a giant problem and we are out of time. But I really, Annie Perry, I'm really grateful that you took the time to talk to me and my listeners about this incredible project that you're taking on. It's really not a project, this incredible adventure. And so I want to thank you, Annie Perry, for joining me on Valley Voices. And I'll link to your GoFundMe page on our website. Annie Perry, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Amy.